You're listening to a Westpac Wire podcast. Westpacwire.com.au. If you had any doubt that sustainable finance is surging, a new report out today by Westpac in collaboration with Economist Impact shows just how much of a shift is occurring in this market. My name is Siobhan Tuhill, Westpac's Chief Sustainability Officer. And to help unpick some of the findings of the research, I'm joined by the Chief Executive of Westpac's Institutional Bank, Anthony Miller. Hi, Anthony. Hi, Siobhan. How are you? Thanks. And the author of the report, representing Economist Impact, Georgia McCafferty. Hi, Georgia. Hi, Siobhan. So, Georgia, the latest survey results show a spectacular surge in growth in sustainable finance adoption over the past two years. What's driving this and what are the biggest surprises? Yeah, we've been very lucky working with Westpac in that this is the second sustainable finance survey that they've done. The first was in 2019. So it actually gives us a real depth of data to be able to compare and see some of the changes in the market. And what you can see in this latest report is that the recognition of the risks of climate change and sustainability are finally hitting home for corporate um, across Asia Pacific. So companies everywhere are recognising that if they don't start to manage their climate and sustainability risks, they're going to have real troubles moving forward. So from an issuer's perspective, we're in 2019, just 18% of companies that we surveyed had issued or utilised sustainable finance. Now well over half, 56%, have now issued or utilised sustainable finance. And this is very much being driven, you can see by the survey results, by this need to mitigate climate risks coming up. The other side of the coin is investors. In, there's huge demand, and there was in 2019 as well, among investors for sustainable investments. 66% of investors across Asia Pacific now have one quarter, 25% or more, of their AUM invested in sustainable finance, and 27% have over 50% invested in sustainable finance. And you can also see from their um, projections for the future, we asked them in three years how much of their AUM is going to be in sustainable finance as well. And you can see a huge growth there in terms of their future AUMs that they are planning to invest in sustainable finance. But it's not just the sheer volume, it's also the products. So the market's really moved beyond green bonds. So things like sustainability bonds, sustainability-linked loans and sustainability loans have really shown the maturity of the market um, and that it's really starting to, as you said, grow very rapidly. So, Anthony, decarbonisation is clearly big business for both investors and issuers, with most organisations taking climate action into their own hands. And 58% of investors and 61% of issuers now aiming for net zero by 2030. That's a really big shift. How realistic is this? Certainly an enormous shift. And actually, you know, I I think it's realistic, um, but it's going to be hard. And so um, there's no doubt about these goals that people are setting are impressive, but it's going to be hard getting there. Having said that, I think it's going to be harder for those entities that don't have a plan or more importantly don't have a name and it's not backed up by a plan and so i think the what we're hearing and what we're seeing with the results from this survey is that the world has changed you must embrace you must deal to this challenge of climate change the challenge of your emissions intensity the challenge of decarbonizing and you've got to have goals and you've got to have a plan to back those goals and if you don't 
then I think you face a bigger risk than the risk of not achieving what is a very ambitious target. Yeah, so building on this, you know, one of the key shifts in attitudes for issuers is, you know, it, previously it was very much around raising awareness, but now we're seeing the shift to taking real measurable action to deliver tangible benefits for mitigating climate and ESG risk. Is that something you've witnessed or experienced? Yeah, so I would definitely agree. It's just been an enormous shift in focus and, you know, it's it's gone beyond awareness. It's a, just a realisation people must get engaged on this. They must invest in this. And in fact, they must immerse themselves in this by having a goal and by having a plan to deliver on that goal. And I think, um, you know, where it's rapidly getting to is you will not have access to debt or equity funding in a few years time if you do not have a very tangible focused plan that delivers on a very tangible measurable goal and so it's all of a sudden moved from it's important it helps differentiate you um, it has a sense of altruism to it to something that actually is fundamental and where i can see the future is that when we look at a company or we look at an investment opportunity, we might look at its financial performance and we'll look at its EBITDA, for example, we'll look at its free cash flow. And then we'll also be looking at, well, where is it at in its uh, climate transition plan? What does that plan look like? How has it delivered on that plan? Um, and what are the forward deliverables that we need to see? And we'll be marking and measuring people based not just on their financial performance, but on this performance as well. And so to me, I think that's, uh, you know, an amazing shift in a very short space of time. On that point as well, I think it's really interesting. If you look from an investor perspective as well, when you ask them whether they're um, willing to invest in companies that are transitioning from, from brown to green, uh, there's huge appetite there. So um, over 80% agree or strongly agree that they would do that. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, you need that kind of, that work from both sides of the market um, to really help these companies as well. Yeah, I think the, the big question is how fast do we need them to move? And I think that's that's the hard question. And I think probably the other thing that's really important, and it's a big challenge, isn't it? And we talk about this uh, often, Siobhan, is, is just how do you um, measure someone and the, what is the definition that we're working towards? And so having very clear, transparent uh, definitions of, you know, what an emissions reduction program looks like, measuring it accurately and being held accountable to that is really important. And I think, you know, that is a, a really important initiative that we saw emerge from COP26 last year, which I think is sort of underlines or underwrites um, the opportunity or at least the ability to deliver on this opportunity in the next five years. In many ways, there wasn't as much progress as some people would have liked to see. But from a financial perspective, it was fantastic and I think that was one of the um, the main good news stories that came out of it to see the real financial change and the real um, you know momentum that's starting to happen there to push this. Well finance was front and centre um, at COP26 so even while we might have seen countries not progress as fast as we might have preferred finance was absolutely there and being committed to our Paris Align pathways and holding their customers and supporting their customers to transition but it was really exciting to see finance really step up this time around. Yeah, but uh, but also just take your point, Georgia, around, um, you know, some frustrations at COP26. Like, I think actually I, I drew positives from that because it therefore meant that we were starting to really deal to the tough issues and we're not going to get them right first time. 
that's just we need to accept that and it's going to be hard and there needs to be failure in many ways before you have progress you need to we need to experiment and try and we don't get there and then we try again and so the fact that we saw some very difficult conversations not realize the outcome that we wanted um, is not as big a negative it would be great if everyone committed but the very fact that people balked at the commitment meant that they realized gee this is a commitment that i cannot step away from and it's a commitment that requires quite profound change and will put a lot of stress and challenge on my economy or my company as the case may be and i think that's great that at last people are therefore staring into and, and dealing to that key point it's going to be very very tough and so therefore you've got to be committed to delivering so going back, Georgia, to the survey, that shows that there's just been a really spectacular leap forward. Um, but the way forward, as we've just been discussing, is really more complex and challenging for some. So what does the data reveal specifically on the challenges and progress of those hard to abate industries? Yeah, so in terms of not just hard to abate industries, but everyone, I think it goes back to one of the key points that Anthony was talking about is the measurability and having those kind of, you know, the data um, and the rules and expectations around what we're doing. So from issuers and investors alike, a lack of reliable data in Asia Pacific specifically is one of the biggest challenges that they face. So at the moment in Asia Pacific, there's no regional agreement on how to report um, and, you know, how to measure um, in some cases, many of these um, assets or emissions. So that's causing real, um, I guess, uh, a kind of a deadlock in the market. Um, you need that information in order to make good decisions from an investor's perspective, but also from an issuer's perspective. So that's basically the biggest challenge that both issuers and investors um, say that they saw. From investors, um, a lack of supply, um, which was the same in 2019. Um, you know, they're really hungry for sustainable investments. They can't get their hands on enough of them. Um, and also liquidity and transaction costs was a, a third one. For issuers, transaction costs, um, they also um, named that as their second biggest one. Um, and this transaction cost thing is actually really interesting. We were talking about it because one side of a deal is going to have transaction costs more than the other. So why are both investors and issuers naming transaction costs as one of their barriers? And I think to this, that transaction costs, when you're looking at sustainable finance for these groups, are more than just a straight fee. They're things like the time you have to take to you know, speak to a board and convince board members that this has to be done. It's getting your head around all the complexities of sustainable finance if you're an issuer or a corporate and trying to understand that. It's, it's you know, getting people on board and those kind of things. So I think that transaction cost side of things need to be, needs to be looked at a bit more broadly. Um, but also insufficient green or sustainable assets, um, issuers also say, is one of the problems from their perspective. But that's decreased since 2019. And I think what you've seen as well with this market is that a lot more products have opened up, so there's a lot more sustainable finance tools at companies' disposal now, and that is enabling some of these companies that traditionally said, well, actually, I don't have any assets that I can really use, you know, to utilise sustainable finance, um, to actually start using it more effectively. Things like sustainability-linked loans open up the sustainable finance markets to a lot more companies. 
So, Anthony, the range of sustainable finance tools and instruments has almost doubled in the last two years alone. What further innovation can we expect to see and where do you still see the opportunities? So look, absolutely, the innovation's been impressive um, as, as people came up with financing solutions and risk management derivative solutions to help clients um, deliver on this. I think we'll see more innovation in those kind of products like the kind of loan or bond that's issued referencing, you know, certain KPIs. However, I think within a certain time frame, those KPIs will be, well, you can't even borrow money whether it's called a sustainable loan or bond, doesn't matter. You simply have to meet this um, uh, before you can uh, have access to the market. So I think that's where I, I sort of see it heading. Having said that, the kind of innovation that I think we can expect and you can see already is some really interesting things being done around, you know, carbon uh, markets, uh, carbon offset sourcing, you know, the integrity and the, and the quality of what that is and, and therefore can you rely upon that and is that appropriate? We'll start to see, you know, that accelerate in particular, and that will be important to ensure we're, we're pricing carbon appropriately and that we're buying offsets that genuinely add, add, are offsetting. Um, and then, so that's sort of one area. The other one that I, I think is going to be very interesting is the, the fact that governments now are really actively investing in or contributing to this, whether not just policy, but now saying, you know what, I have to help where it's not commercial at this point in time. And the interaction and the interdependencies that you have in how you might finance a project by having government or other support that um, uh, will ensure the project and so uh, delivers. And so the kind of precedent is, you think about uh, public-private partnerships, you know, 25 years ago as a way of driving the right build-out and infrastructure. You know, we'll see a lot more of that kind of thinking and that kind of partnership with government driving the kind of agenda we need to deliver you know, a net zero economy uh, by 2050. And certainly a lot of government leadership is needed, not just from policy, but I think it's capital. And so that innovation and how we work with government's capital is going to be some of the more exciting areas for us in the next three to five years, in my view. So building on that, as the rules and expectations around disclosure become more stringent and attract greater shareholder and activist attention, and the prospect of litigation from disclosure grows, is there a risk that some companies may become more cautious about issuance? And what impact might this have on innovation? It's a double-edged sword. So we need really clear rules and expectations. Um, in order to have the data that investors and issuers are craving and the clarity around the market. And unless you have that, the market's not going to grow. On the other hand, there is certainly huge pressure and I think a struggle for many organisations to kind of deal with uh, the, the stringency of the rules. And in many ways, you know, Anthony touched on it, this is new ground for a lot of them. So, you know, you're dealing with stuff that you're trying to learn about, the market's trying to learn about, other people are trying to learn about. So there is certainly, I think, pressure on some organisations and it becomes such a, a a political and media issue sometimes that loses, I think, some of the complexity in there um, in kind of, you know, this, this drive for a headline. And this is a really, really complex area, you know, looking at someone like AGL kind of doing what they're doing, 
it, it's easy to criticise someone like that and say, well, this isn't happening and that's not happening. But you're not in that organisation and trying to deal with, you know, everything else that's going on. It's very, very complex. So there is a chance that it could stifle innovation and prevent some issuances, but I think overall it is a good thing. You need those rules and expectations. They provide clarity um, and it's necessary to grow the market. But yeah, it certainly is, um, I think, something that organisations need to be getting their head around quickly in terms of how they're going to deal with that and, and be able to deal with some of the questions that get raised by the data that, that's revealed. But I think um, just to sort of take one point further, Georgia, again, um, you know, there's a lot of risk and, you know, it's a very huge challenge, but therefore it's an enormous opportunity. Yes. You can't realise opportunities without taking some risks. And you just need to say to yourself, well, ha have I done the work? Am I meeting the standard that I should meet to take this new venture on or go down this path that I'm going down? And, and in a way, because it's hard, we should welcome that because things that are hard to do mean you can probably put yourself in a more privileged position in that market. You know, you can put a moat around a business where it's high barriers to entry, of course. And so, therefore, if it's hard, in some respects, you should be drawn to that because if you can solve it, then you've got something that, you know, is economically very sustainable and, and in a really privileged position. And so, you know, while it could stifle innovation, at the same time, gee, um, it should inspire it because if it's hard to do and you can innovate your way through it, then you set yourself up for, you know, enormous amount of financial success yeah. in addition to the altruistic outcome that we all know is fundamental. And I do think as you see more of it as well, you know, companies themselves start realising that they can do it and the discussion starts to shift around, you know, this kind of blame game into, you know, what you're kind of talking about, Anthony, which is really supporting people to do companies and organisations, which is people at its heart, to do this. Um, and, you know, I think... Most people nowadays in any kind of role really want a sustainable future um, and they're really working hard to do it. Yeah, I think they're really interesting points because my sense is if it feels hard, that's probably a really good sign that you're creating change. Yeah, um, uh, you're and right, Siobhan. There's no game without some pain. Like if it's, if it's not a challenge, then are you really dealing to it? Now, don't get me wrong, I'd like everything to be easy and hopefully occasionally some of these processes will be easy, but... You, you'll be concerned if it's just too easy too often, I think, is the other way to talk about it. So, George, I guess on this same theme, harmonisation of regional reporting is also going to be key to improving the quality of data for both companies and issuers. And they need a more unified approach to reporting and a taxonomy to help inform their investment decisions and to mitigate this, this challenge of greenwashing. So what progress towards consistency do you see underway in the APAC region and are we moving fast enough? Look, APAC's really hard. You look at somewhere like the EU, you know, you've got that, that whole unification that they have there, and APAC doesn't. It's a group of very different countries um, with very different economic circumstances and completely different jurisdictions. So, you know, legally it's also very challenging. Um, but 79% of both investors and issuers say that this lack of regional agreement on standards is preventing the market from growing in the future. They're all finding it hard. And at the end of the day, in many ways, it comes back to this point of data. You know, they don't have the data that they need to make informed decisions and you need that kind of regional agreement to facilitate that. It's not something that's going to happen overnight, but, you know, we were talking about COP26 and one of the big things that came out of that 
was the, the formation or the announcement of the International Sustainability Standards Board or the ISSB. And they're going to be working very hard, not just within APAC, but to institute a global kind of structure that provides more clarity around this issue. I mean, looking at this kind of, you know, regulation and taxonomy issue, it's very complex in sustainable finance, but it's not unique. I think if you look at the way kind of over the past two years, the pandemic has impacted things in terms of, you know, rates of digitisation and those kind of things. Regulators everywhere are struggling to keep up. So sustainable finance is not unique and you're just kind of seeing that catch up. So while there has been a gap, I think, you know, in the next couple of years, you'll see some, some really big progress there. Anthony, the Economist Impact Survey suggests that ongoing healthy growth is anticipated for sustainable finance over the coming years. What are your expectations for the future? Is the boom in sustainable finance in and of itself sustainable? So, so the answer is yes, but I think it it becomes not so sustainable finance. If you want finance, you've got to be sustainable. Do you, know? yeah. you have got to have a yeah. goal. You've got to have a plan. You have got to disclose where you are on that plan and you have got to be transparent and you've got to show performance. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, you miss out on financing or support if you don't meet a target in any particular half year or full year and you know we can all reflect on whether it's Westpac or every other financial institution or every other corporate at some point they don't quite meet market expectations or they don't quite reach what they said they would reach in terms of financial performance and there's consequences in terms of market reaction and and and, and the like I think that's where we end up with this uh which is you know you've you disclosed that you'd achieve a certain re emissions reduction and you don't get there and there will be market consequences in terms of the pricing of your credit pricing of your equity and of course if you do get there and you get there ahead of time then there should be benefits for you as well so i think it becomes normalized and it, it becomes therefore um you know just part and parcel of how you run your organization going forward anthony georgia what a remarkable shift in the response to sustainable finance over the past two years thanks so much for joining me to share your insights I'm really looking forward to even greater acceleration, especially as we transition to net zero, particularly over the next two years. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Siobhan. Thank you, George. That's all from us today at Westpac Wire. For more, head to westpacwire.com.au.